Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling full on. I'm in full throttle. I'm caps lock. <laughs> um, I'm in capital letters. That's exclamation how I feel. mark! Exclamation mark! Seriously, like I've never felt so full on. It's just the best because wow. we are at the start of a new year. It's 2022. I have my voice back. I also just discovered loads of red wine stains all over my oak table from New Year's Eve. I imagine when I had five of my friends at my house and a few people also turned up and knocked knocked on my front door randomly and joined the party but um i had self-esteem the singer singing in my front room and it's just brought it all back to me the joys of seeing in the new year and um, <laughs> and the stains all over your new house yeah, yeah. but they're red wine stains so it's like they're never going to come out i love it yeah. um and, <laughs> and basically this is our second attempt to interview today's guest because mm. yesterday i was in a different town when opticians down the road and i called you and said hi we're online you were like no why didn't you remind me Oh, and then it almost got cancelled today because your equipment wasn't working. So yeah. I do apologise to today's guest. We do want to speak to you. And we've been massive fans of yours for months and months and months. It was I think I discovered you halfway through last year, thanks to Mr. Russell Tovey, who Ooh. was a big admirer of your work. And the reason I'm talking about being full on and in full throttle and caps lock is because that's the kind of only way I could explain how I feel when I look at our guest's work. Because it's very expressionistic or something. It's kind of like futuristic at the same time, but it's got this energy and vitality and joy of life. Also a real kind of freedom of creativity, which I think is quite a rare thing. And it got me to a point last night where I was texting a friend of mine in St. Louis, Catherine Bernhardt, the painter, and I sent her uh, his work and she'd never seen it before. And she went absolutely insane and was sending me messages back in caps lock um, as well, just saying how much she loved the work and like, how come she's never heard of it before? She actually wrote to me and said, incredible, prolific maniac, which I loved. I was like, that's such a good um, description. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, Ramesh Mario Nithyendra. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Hi, Ramesh. How are you? You're so welcome. We're doing good. good. How are you? I'm good. That was the best um, introduction I've ever had. Where are you in the world? Where are we talking uh, to you, Ramesh? I am in Sydney, Australia, and I'm on my lounge, and it's 8 p.m., and I'm pretty settled. I'm pretty chilled. Um, I can't complain. That's good. This is the time that we normally connect. Normally when I'm waking up and we've been DMing each other and I've been liking your pictures and you've been doing the same on my posts and we have a good old chat. And then probably by the time I've got up and fed my dogs, you're in bed. It's so bizarre, the world. So bizarre. Well, I'm usually in bed quite early because um, I work hard all day that I love to go home and be alone. Um, and I think people have this really false perception of me sometimes. I think they think that I'm this kind of wild party animal, you know, really uninhibited. But I'm actually wildly introverted, I would say. I think I'm just a really great performer. Do you think, <laughs> do you think that's because of the work? Because what Rob was saying about full throttle and, you know, exclamation mark, everyone would look at the work and you've been described as the bad boy of uh, Australian ceramics. Do you think that's because people project the work and assume that you live this kind of rock star energy? Well, I, could, I have a really good anecdote that'll actually um, kind of give some context to that. Well, I was, I think like maybe five years ago, I was doing some workshops with, and at the time the appropriate word we used was at-risk youth, um, and they were all making these tiny little bowls 
And the whole time I was like, I don't understand what you're going to put in these bowls. They're like, they're chopping bowls. And I'm like, what are you going to chop? And they just kept saying cucumbers. And then they were just in hysterics the whole time. And then um, when I fired them and put them in the kiln, they all had marijuana symbols on them. And then I realised that they were punking me the whole time. So I'm actually quite, um, I'm quite straighty 180, despite my appearance. Um, But you know that wildness, it's interesting, that aesthetic, that full throttle, that caps lock thing, it always comes up. And what I often talk about is that it's actually a highly constructed register. It's actually really hard to make something look expressive and wild and uninhibited and full throttle. Uh, Because, you know, as makers, people have these tendencies to make things symmetrical or balanced or, you know, and it's actually really hard to fight certain intuitions and, you know, these inherent needs to make things look ordered. So I think what I often try and do constantly in the studio is actually try and make them look ill-considered when in reality they're very highly considered. Well, the process for you is that you, you, you always predominantly work from a sketch, right? Your sketchbooks yep. are really important. Your drawing is incredibly important to you. And then the drawings do become the sculptures. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the drawing, I think, you know, like I always think about drawing as a practice or as almost like a form of penance in a way. Like I draw every day. I'd be very happy not to make anything sculptural every day, but I always need to draw. And that sounds a bit weird and romantic, but... My earliest memories of making art as a child was drawing. And it's almost, um, I think a lot of art, especially contemporary art, is sometimes um, over-rationalised. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing or it's a good thing, but I often find the drawing process for me quite intuitive. And sometimes I'm just led by, you know, the sounds of the scratching, um, you know, and the bleeding onto the next page. And that kind of archive of things that are maybe for me beyond language or beyond verbalization or comprehension is something that I find really generative in my studio. And actually something that I noticed was that you keep notebooks and uh, drawing pads and kind of extensively though it's like a big big part of what you do and I heard recently you actually um place some you know in a, in a museum context or something where they bought a series of your notepads and it was quite a heartbreaking experience for you but can you talk a bit about these visual diaries and, and why that's so important and also personal to you in a different way well uh, you know I think the word like diary is really interesting uh, you know it comes the, the adjective you know diaristic is something I often think about and you know I don't I'm not a very sentimental person in any way shape or form um, I'm actually quite pragmatic as a human which is I think in a way, bizarre being an artist, I think lots of people perceive artists are actually, you know, really sensitive and really romantic. Um, But I think for me, my almost cathartic experiences, just getting through the day is always, you know, with pen and paper, with very kind of humble materials. And I've often kept drawings. I've kept these diaries, not drawings, um, for years. And the two institutions that have my um, diaries are the Powerhouse Museum in um, Sydney and the Art Gallery of New South Wales. So I think between them, they have about 10 diaries. And what I found really heartbreaking about giving the um, diaries away is, you know, when works are placed in collections or people's houses or whatever, it's almost like you're giving them a paragraph or a full stop. But within the diaries, I always see that there's infinite potential, you know, if I can always open them up and find something to make uh, or interpret 
based on something in there. Um, and I think that's the heartbreaking thing. But at the same time, I had this like strange moment of um, like, I hope there's nothing that could like cancel me in my diaries because like yeah. they're actually like, I'd never made them for anyone's gaze. Um, and I think the worst thing in there were like, like shopping lists that included like Magnum egos and like ice cream and all my junk, <laughs> all the junk food that I wanted. Um, so that was really, that was really as, uh, you know, as incriminating as it gets. But you're allowed to go and look at them, though. You're allowed, if you want to go and access them, and you want, you're allowed to open them up still. Or are they is a museum like these are hermetically sealed now. These are ours. Well, the great thing about uh, museums is the fact that they there are archivists who work there. So I have digital images now of every single page that I didn't need to actually um, create myself. So in some ways, I have a um, a more reliable record of them because I could very easily lose these pads. But the, Absolutely. but the iCloud is forever, <laughs> we hope. I, I love the idea of how generative those, those were for you and, and are for you, like, the, like this way of making work. Because when you first like, start looking at, at your work, it's often the ceramics that people talk about, but you actually um, make all kinds of, of different work. And I, I, love, I love this relationship to the hand and then how generative like this kind of subconscious flow of drawing can then lead to much more considered you know, giant public installations almost, like this kind of long line through, through your creativity? Well, it's, that's how I always see practice. You know, I think the trend in contemporary art generally and in the way contemporary art is taught is believing that, you know, art is not medium-specific and we should, we should avoid using medium-specific language to talk about artworks and that, you know, and the opposite of that is essentially thematic interests are more important or actually thinking about the history of materials in more open and reflexive ways. However, um, I've actually always, this is going to sound really weird from considering what I just said, I've always actually considered myself more of a painter. Like if I had to identify with a medium, um, I kind of see myself as a bit of an ironic capital P painter, you know, like working expressively, working immediately, um, there's a bit of um, bravado, I guess, in the way in which the colours are layered, for example. And and I understand the connotations and the baggage that comes with that label. And quite thankfully, I've never really had to um, describe myself in terms of a specific medium. It's just that everybody else does. Um, but when you're in a studio and making things, it's kind of, this sounds, you don't, I don't actually see them as ceramics. You know, they're just, they're almost, things and beings and they kind of come to life and the other part of it is stress you know I don't know if people have made large-scale ceramics before um, but there's just so much room for <laughs> misadventure what do you mean misadventure what's what like a mistake or or they can I, obviously <laughs> the the nature of ceramics is that they can smash in the kiln or yeah. they can just fall apart but yeah. do, do you celebrate the misadventures or are they kind of really frustrating and painful um, okay, without giving away too much of my mystique, Russell, um, <laughs> <I'm> sure, <laughs> there's kind of, there's, there's misadventures with a capital M, you know, that'll make the work look amazing, you know, something might, yes. you know, collapse in a certain way and it all holds together, or I might use a glaze, but I've accidentally, you know, used the wrong bottle and the whole thing's melted funny. 
but it looks amazing. And then there's then there's misadventure that's just annoying um, in ceramics land. And one example of that would be shelling, where the glaze hasn't adhered to the surface properly, and it basically just shells off and cuts your fingers. And eventually, over time, all the glaze will fall off the surface. So it's literally just going into landfill and not going to be able to decompose. No one will be able to enjoy it. Um, and I haven't been able to think of some kind of conceptual rationale for shelling. Um, so that's just a mistake. And the other things are things like hairline fractures, where there are these kind of tiny little fractures in the surface. And if you kind of put it down with too much pressure, it'll just become a big fracture and the thing will fall apart. Uh, it very rarely happens in my studio, but there's always a possibility because you're working with the elements, you know, ceramics is essentially the transfiguration of earth, fire and water. And, you know, you put these methods in to control them and reduce the variables, but by nature, they're unpredictable and every bag of clay is unique. Every firing is unique, you know, and every bit of moisture in there is unique. So you're kind of having to um, do a lot of inverted commas reading of the material the whole time. Why did it, why for you did it, obviously you said you were drawing as a kid and then it's moved on to ceramics, but why do you think ceramics became the medium where you had, where your message felt clearest as, as a, uh... A project as kind of your practice. Oh, I have a re- I have a really good answer to that. I think um, <laughs> I don't know, maybe set myself up now. Uh, but like what I found, I always kind of take it back to my childhood. I know that sounds a little bit Freudian and cliche, but like growing up, I wasn't like I didn't grow up in a you know really open minded, um, free thinking household. You know, I had a fairly standard you know, migrant upbringing. You know, my family were refugees from Sri Lanka and we moved to Australia when I was 11 months old and we lived and, you know, we weren't wealthy or anything. And people from these kinds of communities, diaspora is another word that we might say, um, often will retreat to religious settings to build some kind of community and connection with like-minded people. And, you know, my father is of a Hindu background, but my mother is of a Catholic background, but they both weren't necessarily religious. But we ended up going to those places um, a lot of the time just on a cultural level. And I always have, I have this vivid memory of going to a church in Western Sydney all the time because I think they tried to make me like good Christian boy. It didn't work out. Um, and there was a sculpture of Pieta and it was this, um, it was... Jesus kind of about to die, essentially. I think he was dead. Is Pieta, is he dead at that point? And Mary was holding him and it was this big agony kind of... um, When he's come off the cross. When he's come off the cross. Yeah, yeah, he's dead, yeah. And I just remember being completely terrified by that sculpture. Um, All the time, I was completely terrified by it. And then as as I got a bit older, and I'm talking like 10, I found it really homoerotic. Um, the way in which the flesh and the sweat and the drapery was kind of languidly on him. And then I remember going to the temple and running around and eating and there were chickens and peacocks and I loved all the sculptures. And I think from a very early age, I was not interested in kind of monocultural or monotheistic ways of perceiving the world. And when I... As an adult, you know, when I started making ceramics, which wasn't that long ago, 2015, not 2015, 2013, 2013. um, The more you research, the more I looked into the actual histories of ceramics, and I'm quite um, 
careful to use that plural term, um, the more I realized that the history of ceramics is really the history of like human thinking. You know, we've been making sculptures out of clay since we've been able to use our hands. And um, most cultures have some kind of creation story that actually involves fashioning human life from earth, red earth, clay or mud. So speaking to kind of alternate ways of viewing the world or um, speaking to limited narratives and trying to challenge those, I think ceramics is a really interesting material um, to use for that reason. Definitely. And actually, in your childhood, you, you actually started to make ceramics, didn't you, at the, like around the age of 10 when you went to Clay for Kids um, in Western Sydney. Is that right? Can you talk a bit about whether that education actually, you know, was relevant to where you ended up going? Well, yeah, I'm so impressed by your research, Rob. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know... Well, Chris, think... Rob's, Rob's a member of Clay for Kids. So that's, <laughs> why. <laughs> that's why. I still act like I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Well, you know, the I just remember, I think as a child, what's interesting is what I remember the most about the working with clay is the smell. And I remember it smelling quite similar then to it smelling now. And I think there's this lovely, like, nostalgia that comes into my mind when I work with the material. But, you know, when I think about that on a more macro level, um, that nostalgia actually brings you back to like millennia, you know, because people have been making things from ceramics for literally thousands of years. Uh, I'm not figuratively speaking, but I remember in that class, I just made some ugly head, which, you know, isn't too dissimilar to what I would have, what I would make now. But why I stopped, because... Ceramics education just generally is fairly conservative. Um, I think people generally have some kind of historical amnesia in which they think that the history of ceramics is the history of utilitarian wear, when really that's a very, that's just one part of a um, complex web of how the material has been iterated over time. Well, so you were saying about, you know, as a kid you drew faces and a head. All of your work now, as you were saying, is does have a face, does have... Uh someone an eye it's nose something that we can sort of project onto as being a face what what is that giving you then through as the language of your work is that you create this kind of army that are that are either guardians or protectors and they're there kind of you're you're stuck in their gaze there's something unsettling but there's also something kind of comforting you know what um that, i think that's a question for the psychoanalyst russell but i have a um it's like it's also the kind of art I like to look at. I'm not that interested in colour field abstraction or, um, you know, for paintings of light on water or, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that there's no merit or value in them. It's just I tend to, I'm, I'm primarily interested just in my life in representations of the human figure. Um, and that also sounds a bit speciest because I also like to look at, you know, anthropomorphic and zoomorphic um, iterations of the human figure. But that's always what I'm drawn to, even, you know, socially and politically. What, I, what I'm interested in is, you know, how bodies are, you know, displayed in contexts that aren't just art and, you know, art history. And I think that's what's always, you know, brought me back to this idea of the face, um, this kind of human element where you can actually engage and reflect audiences quite simply in that way. Um, mm. But it's also like what I like to draw and what I like to make. 
I, I'm really aware as well, though, that your work isn't sort of um, exact. You know, it's, it's not like hyper real or or something like that. It's kind of it, it is very open to interpretation. And I heard you mention before this idea of like it's not just necessarily even humans. Like it could be. Um, you know, animals or, or other species. But also, I, something that really struck me in that interview was this idea that you really think about the audience. So you're kind of considering how an audience might uh, walk through a space in relation to the sculptures or how an audience might even look at that face and interpret it. Whereas there are some artists we speak to who are like, we never think of the audience, you know, it's the artwork and it's this kind of sacred um, space insular or something. Thing, yeah. It's, yeah, insular thing yeah. that's only about the idea and, and, and them, not the audience. So why is it that you as an artist like enjoy the idea of sort of exploring an audience and the way they interact? Well, I think a few things. Like um, I've got my diaries to be, you know, inward looking about. And I just think philosophically, I think this kind of inward lookingness is something that I really try and work against. And when I often think about what I'm, I often try and think about the art I don't want to see, if that makes sense, when I make my own work. Because you could, you're, an artist's life generally is quite lonely. You know, I work with one other person in my studio um, and we're just like getting filthy and dirty and dusty the whole day. Um, and then I come home and I'm tired. Um, it's not that glamorous. And I think audience engagement, I think, is a form of activation that actually provides a little bit of connection. But, you know, it comes back to a lot of things. Like, I remember studying in art school and, you know, I was often fed a very, you know, singular view of an art historical canon and I never felt like I could relate or insert myself into that canon without feeling um, peripheral or, you know, like I was positioned in some kind of binary, you know, this self-other stuff. Um, and when I think about my work, I, I just don't want my work to have that effect on people. Um, I kind of want people to, on a very literal level, to be able to access the work on multiple levels. Um, and I think it's down to what values I appreciate and want to have and project as an artist. And I think... Um, that kind of sense of, you know, multiple narratives and plurality and um, access is something I often think quite carefully about. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and, and all, all the characters feel like there's motifs that come through, but there's definitely this uh, queerness that comes through and this gender fluidity and the, the elements of both genders going through, that the phallus appears a lot, uh, tongues. Uh, and then there's a lot of self-portraits. Like we're talking to you now, and you've got a nose piercing, like a ball ring piercing. And this, I now knowing you, I can see throughout your your avatars. I guess is how you describe them. Um, this this queerness that's running through it, and this this kind of self portraiture in these characters. That that's important message for you to have in your work. Yeah, you know, I think artists often. There's that cliche, you know, when they say, oh, all art is a self-portrait. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that. But what I often think about is, um, I think what I've often, what I've noticed is that I don't think people actually know what queer means a lot of the time. I think sometimes, you know, um, gay art and queer art get conflated when they're actually very different um, positions. And I think 
my views on the world come down to this material. And, you know, ceramics is something, it's slippery, it's mud, and it's essentially constantly transforming. You know, you, you take it out of a bag and it's wet and then you mould it into something. It dries, it shrinks, it changes again. You take it to a thousand degrees, you put it into fire, essentially. Uh, it changes again. Then you glaze it, it changes again. And I think that constant state of transformation uh, is what I find really uh, rife with kind of discursive or, you know, ideological potential um, when I'm making my work in terms of like queerness, I'd say. And I think for for me, what I think about is this notion that, um, you know, queerness or queer practices are actually beyond aesthetics is something I consider, um, you know, like what is, how is the work actually functioning in the world. And I think that kind of slipperiness um, and being somewhat unable to locate the works in specific time periods or um, styles is something I often attribute to a bit of a queer lens in how I'm making them. Mm. I, I, I definitely feel a kind of almost like a resistance to existing styles and that you somehow are inventing this this new style very much of your own and i think part of that is the exquisite corpse um that you uh, it's almost like an approach you have when you make sculpture i watched an amazing film of you you know um tr sort of trying out different um body parts or different what do you call them like almost like sections of the figure it's like totemic becomes, isn't it that totem yeah like a totem but each one is like maybe there's like five parts that make the totem from completely different universes like it's totally unusual the way that it ends up becoming. How did that evolve? Is, is that kind of through that concept of queerness or the the exquisite corpse? I just want to explain what exquisite corpse is as well for the listeners. So exquisite yeah. corpse is this game that was actually invented by the surrealists. It's a parlor game. And what it is, is you give someone a section of paper, you draw, say, the head, then you fold it over, but you do little lines that continue down, but you don't know what the person before has drawn, then you continue it. So you might have played it as a kid and it goes around the room and then you open it up and then you see this creature that appears that is all different elements of everybody's imagination for what they think that body part should be that's called an exquisite corpse carry on i have a i have a i have a really anticlimactic response to this um so, <laughs> well to build scale or in ceramics you're essentially limited by the height of the kiln and if I want to, if I want to make a life-size figure, I often just have to make them in three parts because the internal dimensions of my kiln is like ninety-five centimeters. So they usually go legs, torso, head, three parts, and then I join them together in my magic engineering kind of ways. So that's my very pragmatic um, way to think about it. But yeah, which is just as important though. I love that. <laughs> well, it's 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 just a, they're just modular because I'm limited by my equipment. And yeah. I guess that's just part of the process. But what I what it actually does, I've actually found ways of making in the studio where if I'm making a head or a body, I'll make sure it can actually fit well onto the other bodies or legs um, or heads. Right. So if I have this, you know, epiphany uh, that I want this head to be on that one instead, it can actually happen. But the other thing I do, which is, again, very pragmatic, um, I don't know if you notice this, but a lot of the work I make are in these doubles. So there are often like twins or cousins of a similar kind of work. And it's usually because um, in case one breaks, um, only because of the firing, once, they're, once they've come through the process, they're totally like 
they'll last as long as, you know, they'll last forever. Um, but I often make things in pairs to um, ease the stress of the processes beyond my control. Mm. So do you always so you always fire in pairs, if not more? You'd never fire a singular work? Uh, well, no, I, I basically will put as much in the kiln as I can. Um, so <laughs> it's just, it's more economical uh, what's going on. But the building process is quite, that's, that actually is the most time and energy. It's actually getting the wet clay and essentially starting with nothing and then bringing this figure to life, that actually takes the most time and energy. It's incredible having that knowledge you just said about knowing that these works are going to live forever. Because you look at references in your practice, Rob said at the beginning that he feels there's futurism, but there's also such an ancientness to your practice. But what, it's quite an existential question, but what does that feel like knowing that your work is going to last way beyond all of us if it's looked after? Well, I recently was getting troll on social media, just, I don't know, about some by some bots, and they were threatening, threatening to burn one of my sculptures down. And it was really funny because the sculpture they wanted to burn was a big bronze. Um, and the whole time in my mind I was thinking, good luck, you'd probably need an angle grinder to do any damage to that work. And, you know, often... This idea of permanence, or if I speak in a more dry sense, the archival properties of a work. Uh, I find ceramics is an interesting one. You know, I think people have a certain literacy with ceramics. You know, you can, if I made a sculpture out of, you know, resin or bread and I sealed the bread and it was going to last forever and I told someone that, I think there'd still be a little bit of apprehension. But I think there's a certain literacy around ceramics because of people's... um, familiarity with it in domestic contexts you know you sit in a toilet you drink from cups um and i guess i haven't actually thought too much about death and mortality yet i'm like 32 um, but maybe i should probably start thinking about it but um the i often will make work to be archival because i don't i also just don't want them to go into someone's house or into a setting and be precarious. Um, Like, I actually, like, what I've noticed, I guess, speaking to collectors and people, you know, people, most people buy art because they love it, you know, and they want to, they actually, you know, they worship these things. And I'm not being, like, hyperbolic when I use those words, but often people's art collections are their most important objects to them. And I just don't want them to fall apart as well. Well, that's very uh, considerate. I love that because, um, <laughs> again, some artists probably wouldn't um, wouldn't be that concerned. It's very sweet. Um, so, talking about these the, these bots and these trolls, I heard that you did a public sculpture in the Gold Coast um, at Home of the Arts, which is also known as H O T A, and the 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 sculpture apparently had like people thinking it was about demon worship and there was a lot of kind of outcry from some i think a small amount of locals but it still was a bit of an out- outcry <laughs> from from real people what's that like um making work in the public realm and then when you get people reacting to it obviously positively but also you get these kind of ignorant people that that have an issue or take um you know um have a problem with with the work <laughs> uh, you know like i think Getting kind of, I guess getting like harassed on socials and is always, it always kind of sucks. And 
I guess it's just part of a package of being somewhat in public life. But I think the thing that I realised, which I actually didn't realise, was that people see a sculpture being in public space as very different to being in a gallery. Um, I think people have feel more of a sense of ownership around public space, which is, I guess, part of a, you know, contemporary condition and, all you know, the museum is almost this kind of fantastical other kind of space. But, you know, I actually just didn't realise that it would be engaged with in a way that was different to how it would be engaged with just inside a building. Um, and that that was the really eye-opening thing for me. Um, and then the more I kind of Googled stuff about public art, the more I noticed that often artists get scrutinised a lot because of their public sculptures, um, works that are in the public arena, in public space, when, you know, a publicly funded museum is essentially public space. Um, so... This kind of outdoor setting was at working in an outdoor setting. That was the first time I worked in an outdoor setting. And it was essentially this massive um, guardian figure. And if you look at the language or vernacular around, especially East Asia and South Asia, um, of guardian figures, they're actually incredibly ferocious. You know, they've got these teeth, they're dripping with blood. They've got these eyes that are like piercing with veins because they're open the whole time, you know, guarding Um this building or place of civic importance. And I was viewing the guardian figure as more of an offering, if you know what I mean. It was like this um, thing where it's actually thinking about art as this place of being able to think freely and be open and change your um, viewpoint. So I was actually thinking of the museum as a kind of space that needed to be protected. And But I brought language and symbolism. I didn't realise... Australians wouldn't be able to um, understand quickly. So my guardian figure was perceived to be demonic when it's actually a welcome. You know, it's demonic because it's scaring the bad shit away. But it's not even demonic. It looks like a cartoon, you know, like, like if you actually think about words like perversity or obscenity, you know, these really obscene physical acts of display, I think most colonial monuments are way more obscene than what I've presented. Mm. <laughs> Agreed, yeah. Yeah, and also I think you described them as slightly camp, some of the colonial sculptures that you see around Australia, because you've, you've started referencing them and looking at what has been before and then what you're going to do. Well, I think, you know, just, I guess, semiotics is a term that comes up, and sorry if my speech is a little bit like I've swallowed a thesaurus, I don't mean it to be. No. Um, what does that I mean, just... though? What does that mean? <laughs> I guess it's just the way in which... Um, like symbols are perceived in relation to each other. And I just automatically think if I'm going to put a bronze sculpture of a figure in public space, it's going to be read in relation to other bronze figures in public space. And in a kind of, you know, neo-colonial Australian context, um, the bronze sculptures in public spaces are primarily um, colonial monuments of men um, with a bit of a, with strange proportionality and often commemorating their claims to space. And I wanted to kind of provide an anti-monument in that respect. And my bronze sculpture, you know, you can see my handprints all over it. There are like toys that I had that are embedded into the cast that are now in bronze. Um, the actual head. What, what, what do you mean? Like what toys? Like, like action oh, figures? and. No, I have this really weird habit of collecting rubber snakes. Um, so I've got to... Because I, well, I always, 
Well, I really love snakes. That's sort of my like key. What's one of the things I love looking at? What, like as a pet or just like? <laughs> no, uh, more mythical. I don't really want to run into one. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm really interested. Not in, not in Australia, <laughs> especially. Yeah. No, I'm really interested in imagery of snakes and. Often, like, I, ne- I love working, I love making molds of things. Um, I just never have the time to. But I have this fantasy of always making molds of the snakes, the rubber snakes that I've collected. And I have in the past, but I'd like to make more. But so if you actually look at the bronze sculpture, um, I made the thing out of clay and then it was turned into bronze. But I pressed a lot of rubber snakes from my collection um, oh. <laughs> into it. So there's actually lots of little fun little secrets and the actual head of that work was finger painted um, with, you know, two-pack paint. Like, it was, like, the most anti-bravado kind of, you know, six-metre-tall work I think you could see of a bronze sculpture, in my opinion, you know. Yeah. That's all I well, I hope people listening to this are going to send you truckloads of rubber snakes now to your <laughs> studio. <laughs> you can mould and put in all your work. That's brilliant. So for you right now, you're, you're at this kind of um, moment. You, you, you've got huge acclaim. You've got huge support. Your work sells out. Uh, you're being talked about loads. Um, but as an Australian artist, within historical contemporary art, there's not many Australian artists that have made it, you know, beyond Australia. And you've just opened a show in Mumbai in India at Javeri Gallery called The Mud and the Rainbow, which is we can talk about in a minute, which is an incredible title. But how is this feeling like for you that this success is happening? And what is it like for your contemporaries in Australia seeing this? Oh, um, you know, that's that's really nice, Russell. Thank you. Um, but, you know, I don't I think people who are successful never feel successful. Like, do you feel successful? I, I feel like I feel like I have a calmness and I feel like I, I put that down to feeling like, OK, I can relax now. Things are going well and there's lots going on. You must have like an inner, inner peace or, or that thing where you're working and you want someone to notice and encourage you forwards. And you've got lots of encouragement now and lots of people noticing. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That's nice. Um, you know, I like never, I never, like growing up, I never even thought being an artist was a career or something that I could even do. It was a fantasy, you know, and like making my work is really physically exhausting. So sometimes I complain, but I always like, I went to a really academic school. Like I could have very easily been a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. Um, So I'm often like, I often think just, just one thing could have changed my whole path in life. Mm. And I could have gone down a very different route. And like the thing that I love the most is, you know, often like on Instagram, I'll get DMs from like really young Sri Lankan or Indian artists just saying how inspired they are. And I'm always shocked because, like, I don't feel, you know, fabulous. I feel just worked to the bone most of the time. Um, But I still love it. Just because it's hard doesn't make it bad. But, like, there's something really interesting, I think, geographically about Australia. I think there's this perception that Australia is really, you know, far away, you know, despite this view that the world is flat because of the internet and we can, you know chat instantly on WhatsApp, on Instagram and circulate information in these really um, efficient kinds of ways. I think, like, I talk about it with colleagues here and, you know, one hypothesis, and I probably don't have the experience enough to actually say what it is, but one hypothesis is that I 
think for some people, Australia isn't exotic enough to travel the long distance to, you know, and then yet it's not centred enough, inverted commas, for them to travel there either. Um, So that's, I think, part of it. But, you know, I'm quite careful in... I try and position myself a little bit beyond... Beyond is the wrong word, but maybe to the side of certain discussions around, you know, identity politics. And um, I often see my work as, you know, projecting... I I always want to think about global narratives. Um, Mm. You know, even terms like East, West, like I don't prescribe to. I like wonder how relevant they are um, beyond a history textbook about, you know, how the world was organised. But I, like... I think the COVID stuff, I know I, hate, I know people talk about it a lot, um, but I think it was like really helpful for me um, in terms of gaining some traction. I had lots of international stuff planned that got cancelled. Um, but I think engagement in the digital space increased quite a lot. And even from collectors, you know, I think there was a real excitement about art as a way to add value to people's lives. And I think that's part of a larger condition that people are experiencing. I was also wondering whether the, because I saw in, in, during the pandemic, you started to paint more and I watched some amazing videos of you very enjoying what you were doing. Like you're literally like slapping on the eyes, you know, and there's like a real sense of glee in your face. It's fantastic to watch. Um, but also you you started to do more public sculptures and outdoor work. And the one you did at Dark Mofo for um, Dark Lab, um, which was called Earth Deities, I think is just extraordinary. Like it's such an amazing installation, which involves kind of light and and there are these giant sculptures with kind of rope and strings or, or whatever it is like on on the actual arms and stuff and 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 also i heard you you were doing um a sculpture park in jaipur as well um making an installation for there so it has has covid meant that it's enjoyable to make work outdoors as well like or is that just something that you think's developed anyway uh-huh. well i like you know i think a few years ago i thought to myself um this is a very dry response as well but i thought to myself art is what i want to do i love doing art and there are only like there are only certain amounts of galleries that can show my work, but there's lots of outdoor space. I should probably start thinking about um, occupying some of that, you know, with artworks, because uh, I love seeing artworks in public space, even if it's bad, you know, at least it's there. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of the way I started to think about it. But, you know, from a, I guess, conceptual level, like working outdoors is just so radically different. I feel like you know, when I'm showing works in a museum, for example, or a inverted commas collecting institution, there's just so much, there's such a different way you have to kind of frame your thinking. And what I like, I think especially like during COVID, what I craved was audience engagement, essentially. And, you know, like that dark mofo crowd, we got like, that, like there were like 300,000 people who viewed that work in like three days where, you know, you might have a show in a small museum and get like 40,000 max if the show's on for six months. So, like, Mm. I was really thinking about those kinds of things. But, you know, working outdoors has its own set of challenges um, in that the team is always just larger. It's it's rather than a fabricator. It's, It's a fabricator, an engineer, a builder, 
an install, then it's just it's just kind of never ending. But it's it's quite rewarding to work with technologies in that scale. Like that type mofo work had smoke machines, it had like LED, it had like all ca- it had car parts into it. Um, so you know, and it's pretty it's a pretty cool feeling to like watch like a crane like drop your massive head onto your sculpture. Like <laughs> mm. I know that sounds a little bit like um swinging my dick around, but and it does swing in the air the head like when it's about your to dick come in. Or- <laughs> <laughs> the head, the head, the head. The head. <laughs> um but there's just something like every time I make a work, I'm always shocked that I made it. I know that sounds really bizarre. But like I'm always like, oh I made that. Wow. Um, what, like, where yeah. did it come from? Or well, like, just like, oh, I can't believe I made that. Like, it's almost a, a no. bit of a joy in that. Um, you must in, like your own work, then. You must be a fan of your own. You know what? I, I often say to people, you need to be a bit of a narcissist to be successful because you just get told your shit so many times. Like, you actually have to believe you're kind of good to be able to keep going, especially at the start. And I actually am pretty happy that. I actually like most of the work that I make. I think every work that I put out there, I think I love. That's so cool. That's so cool. That's what I love about you, though, is that joy, because you really feel it. Joy in the is work. a massive element, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, w- How, is that, sorry. I was going to say, with success, then, then there must come a wish list. Like you were saying earlier on, this modular, totemic way of firing your figures. So, as you get more successful and budgets spread, is the dream to have a huge kiln where you can actually make these as one solid object or what, what is the next kind of thing? Because you obviously have a studio assistant now that that's, that's obviously budgetary. That's quite a, a big responsibility, but is there, what is the dream now for you going forward? Oh my God. That, you know what? Um, like that's such a, like that's, that is really, that's a question I actually haven't thought about that much. Like, Mm -hmm. My, like, of course, I, I would love a large kiln because it means I could actually challenge myself in the making process. And I often, I, I enjoy the work I do because it's hard. Like, if it was easy or, like, if I was, you know, just churning things out in linear ways where I knew there'd be, like, a good result at the end, I probably wouldn't be that happy with it. So I think my view is to always... And I think pushing technical limits is something that unlocks so many different things. And like just having like a massive kiln, you know, with a trolley that you could pull out so you don't have to kind of bend over and like break your back, getting them in the kiln, that would be like amazing. But I think for me, it would really be more about um, having like being able to maybe... You know what? I think I'm pretty happy as I am right now. But, right. like, what I would like to do would be to work with things that move a bit more. Snitch so, snitch. I've... St- <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I've started... You're going to recreate Britney Spears, like... <laughs> I'm a slave for you. With the, with the yellow snake. <laughs> I mean, like an animat- animatronic sort of vibe. Well, going uh, <laughs> something kinetic, I think, is the next stage for me. Nice. I don't nice. know what it is. That's interesting. That would make sense. I don't it? know what it is. But I think... I think yeah, it's like an Alexander Calder for... sort of feel, isn't it? Like a oh, mobile yeah. sort of, but with your... Versus Ramesh. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, R- R- Ramesh, there, there's a mantra that you, you you said before as well, which is work hard, work fast, work smart. And I really loved that, though, because I just thought it was such a brilliant 
sort of summation of a lot of what you do, because it is really highly intelligent what you do. Like you said, you could have been a doctor if you wanted to be. You kind of chose art as this uh, space for yourself. But like, I, I do also think you work hard and you work fast. Like, there is a speed. A brilliant yeah, you're right, combination Rob. of it all. And then you feel it in the, in the sculptures. Mm. Like they are like these kind of painted... They you do know, energetic. Feel. They do have that speed. You're right because it, it also makes me think of the way that Keith Haring always said, "I um I work fast, but it's a fast world." Is this sort of you can feel the energy in your work that it's come out? It, it's like instinctive and it's quick and it's reactive in some ways. That you know what it's kind of like. That's that's how I like love to work. Like the idea of labouring over something over a long period of time. Or it's just seriously unappealing to me. Um, and, you know, when I talked about, like, generally I love most of the work that I make, um, it's because I'm kind of surprised a little bit that they've turned out in a way that's satisfying to me. And, you know, lots of people think my work's ugly and bad. Like, that's fine. Like, at least they have an opinion. Um, lots of people don't even have opinions. Um, so that's fine. But, like, my... Thinking about that is, you know, when I said that in that video, I felt a little bit embarrassed because sometimes as artists, I think we often try to mystify the labour a little bit. You know, it's almost like if we say we work hard, work fast and work smart, it's almost anti-intellectual. You know, are we these like purveyors of um, new ways of seeing the world if we're working hard, working fast and working smart? And then I just thought to myself, that's the truth and I'm being authentic uh, you know, I just kind of got to, got to just own it a little bit. And I think like working hard and working fast and working smart, I think a lot of their, a lot of the processes in the work as well are intuitive and that kind of intuition, I think has been a little bit, you know, if you think about the way in which ideas around male or female or, you know, the way in which people have viewed people from different races, you know, as often hyper-emotional and, you know, positioning, you know, rational thinking people is of a certain standard. Like, it sometimes feels a little bit embarrassing to say that I don't over-rationalise the process. Um, you know, sometimes a mouth is placed a certain way uh, because I have a bit of a feeling that it should be that way. Um, and... Like, it's taken me a while to feel confident to verbalise that. Yeah, definitely. But I, I also do think there's a a real striving for kind of technical, like almost like finding new ways of making things. Because even when you had your studio, I don't know if you're still there, but at Rydalmere, I think it was a residency you did there maybe. But when you were at Rydalmere and then you were near the, the, the car... Um, auto parts place where they were like spraying stuff and then you collaborated with them um and they actually like sprayed onto your sculptures that must have been a slower process but you were you were achieving something different weren't you like as a texture as a mm -hmm. and quickly sorry to keep talking but um my favorite bit ever that i've seen of you is you standing in your shorts mm -hmm. with this guy talking all about the technicalities of car yeah, paint yeah, yeah. and then in the background there's Cher. yeah and I couldn't work out where Cher was coming from. It was like, do you believe in life after love? And it was like the vocoder. Pick up it's on you that. just standing there really casually and this guy who's like, uh, you know, he's working in a car. He's a proper, garage, yeah, yeah, proper worker. He's like a quite, quite a lad yeah. in a way. But it was just so funny, the contrast of that song, you and then him. I loved it. A lot of people picked it's up on that. It's a genius moment of art itself. Oh, it was fun. <laughs> Who was playing the Cher song? They were, they were. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it wasn't me, surprisingly, but... 
<laughs> I don't know. It was the car people next door. You know, they, they. It was this really kind of hyper mask environment where they'd like literally pimp your ride, and that's they were literally next door. So I would go in and chat because they were like the fun people on the block. Um, and like artists are really serious sometimes. Like you know, like I know that sounds a bit. Sometimes people think artists are really wild and crazy, and I like say to my mum, I'm like, no, they actually look a bit like they work in a bank. Sometimes it's not about the aesthetic; <laughs> it's about it's about perspectives, and you know, it's just a cliche that we all look a certain way. Um, but what I found really interesting about them is they would bring these cars in, and they would just be the most like extra over the top cars I'd ever seen. It would be like lime green, fluoro yellow, pink, like text flames. So I was just like, can you do this on a sculpture? And they were like, yeah, it's easy. And the thing about those kind of two-part automotive paints is you can get pigments that are so bright that will just not survive in a Kilner's glaze because those really bright pigments burn out when you get to quite a high temperature. So we got this like amazing electric pink on um, one of my like fertility figures because we used a totally different medium. But the thing about those auto paints are is because they're designed for cars. They're totally weather wearing. They're like totally permanent. So it was actually like a really amazing thing to do. And in lots of ways, it was less work because they literally um, put it in their like painting room. Then he sprayed it and then they turned the room to like 40 degrees. So it was warm. So it set and then it was kind of done. Um, and glazing is like, five layers cleaning and then three and three days in the kiln. Wow. I, I loved it when you, when, when, when they sprayed a purple color over one of your sculptures and then you were like, what kind of person would actually have that color on their car? And the guy just looked totally like he didn't know what to say. It was just really funny because <laughs> it's true. The colors they have are like so wild. It's like, I've never seen a car that color and I, I would love to. I mean, it's, it's, I love the idea they do that. Anyway, I thought that was really, really funny. It was brilliant. It's interesting, that idea of the artist and the perception of what an artist is. Because even, like, your personal style, like, outside of your work, I love the way that you, you dress because I, I, I relate to it in many ways. Like, your, the way that you clash prints and you seem to express yourself through colour. But, like, it is interesting, this idea of the artist as a rebel or as a punk. And I think one journalist, even weirdly, which I thought was kind of weird, that they, they compared you to, like, Jack Sparrow from Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean, which I just thought was so sort of reductive and stupid. Like... It's just sort of like, I don't know, it just seemed really like to take away from you rather than add anything. I thought that was a weird one. But I, I, I love this idea that, you know, you might come around your house and you're just there sort of, you know, having dinner quietly with yourself. It's like, it's not really that rebellious um, because there's so much effort that has to go into making the work. Yeah, that's actually true. But you know what? My house actually looks a little bit like my work. Um, like I've, <laughs> all my, I don't like, I don't believe in like, having a furniture set it all has to be different they're all colorful um and they're all made really beautifully and they're all from like different parts of the world um so I actually like to um I like to furnish a little bit and something I often like think about when I make art or when I dress often people like I get a lot of like fashion media as well which is fine but I often see you know like if I go into the studio and I make work I don't kind of come home and then open my wardrobe and turn off and suddenly dress a different way. <laughs> I kind of like see everything as one thing. One. And yeah. like, I think a lot of the, um, a lot of the way, even just the idea of, you know, the polychrome and the way it's iterated and the value systems around 
how we view, you know, polychromatic colour schemes is really interesting because, you know, if you go to like different parts of the world, street vernacular is very different. You know, if you go to like Taipei, for example, or Tokyo, you know, the, the urban vernacular at night especially is incredibly colourful. If you go to South Asia, the daily dress is incredibly colourful and there's gold and there's metallics and, you know, foils and, you know, very highly saturated pigments that people are wearing. Whereas I think, yeah. you know, in more inverted, co- in what in contexts people perceive to be more sophisticated, there's a view that things could be more demure. And I've often kind of thought against that kind of zero design policy. And I'm all, for, I'm all like more is more. Do you, do you think there was part of um, being a refugee, you know, moving from Sri Lanka as a child where you were born and then growing up in Australia, which is a very different culture, was was there a, a yearning for you to kind of look back to, you know, Sri Lanka and, and, and explore that, that kind of part of your history? You know, I think as a young adult making art, yes. And I think because, you know, in 20, maybe 10 years ago, um, I think the literacy around, um, you know, migrant narratives was quite small. And if you actually look at the way migrant narratives are presented in the West a lot of the time, it's often through the lens of crime, you know, um, queue jumping, stealing, not treating women properly. Um, And so I think it was always about, I guess, trying to be really well behaved was really the um, framework I grew up with, you know, I was always, I had my homework on time, you know, my book work was impeccable. Uh, I was really nerdy. Uh, but I think I never, I always felt like I had a strange or different way of viewing the world. And I think the arts communities that I engaged with is where I felt the most sense of belonging in that, you know, there was, and in art history, for example, you know, in, even in school, we were studying things where people were actually like being quite challenging of their time. You know, we were learning about feminism in a positive light. Um, We were learning about um, artists who are dealing with race politics and we're having open discussions. Um, And I think that's what really drew me to art practice historically and, you know, even moving forward. It was this kind of long line of um, actually valuing people that were, you know, thinking beyond limited narratives yeah and do you think that's why you're so interested in goddesses and kind of um avatars and uh, and even the idea i never knew the word avatar actually meant a kind of manifestation of a deity or a released soul in a bodily form on earth like the idea that it the the avatar is actually something sort of soulful and spiritual and i know that you're an atheist but like but is 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 that kind of also linked to that experience do you think yeah like uh, like i don't like the avatar term that I often use I like love that term because I think there's there's just it's such a promiscuous term it's kind of everywhere um but nowhere you know like we're kind of creating avatars constantly as we move through immaterial digital spaces yet that actual term is has you know had presence for thousands of years as well and like I said before that I'm quite unsentimental uh maybe that's Maybe I am, but maybe in a less predictable way. But I often see the works as kind of characters rather than objects, if that makes sense. Like once they're finished, they're, they're almost, they're, they almost feel 
like, um, I don't know, they feel like a bit sentient to me. And I think that's something that is... A what, is that, bit, what does that mean, sentient? Has life. So I almost see it as something that, you know, is breathing or life. Not it's animated. Yeah. It's animated. Yeah. And I think that's what I also love about art. It's that ability to like, you know, be able to look at something every day and feel something different. Totally. Yeah, and actually, I think your sculptures, if you think of them as sentient beings, like they actually feel themselves, like they, they're able to, to sort of access emotions. It's quite a cool way of looking Absolutely. at them. Absolutely. So you, you just opened a show at uh, Javiri Gallery in Mumbai, which we touched on earlier, called The Mud and the Rainbow. Um, title is Heaven. Uh, but you've installed this show in Australia. So you've done this over Zoom because of obviously what's going on with COVID. You've not been able to travel there. What has that been like? And what is it like to have a show there? And also big up to uh, Priya there, who is an absolute legend, who's one of the directors, absolutely adore Priya. She is just the best person to connect to. What's that like? Oh, you know, like best case scenario, I could be there, right? But the work up there, like it has a good audience. Like uh, I'm just happy it's there. And like installing over Zoom is, it's fine. You know, like I guess, you know, if I was, I knew I was in good hands because I, all the other exhibitions they did that I was looking at looked amazing in my opinion. So I just, I just kind of thought you just kind of have to chill out and um, let it eventuate with their processes. And it's actually fully installed now, even though it hasn't technically opened. And look, I'm going to say it, it's a very different kind of looking show for me. Um, But I like love it. I think they did a really great job and there's kind of breathing room and you can tell they've thought about like a more of an experiential um, way to encounter the different works. But I think, you know, as a Sri Lankan person, ethnically, there is something quite special about showing works in, especially contemporary art in South Asia um, and actually engaging with an audience that you can relate to on that cultural level. I think people... You know, I think people underestimate the um, significance of that. And, like, uh, the actual show, there's 14 sculptures and there's, in my mind, there are fertility figures, warrior figures, um, there are avatars and there are also, there's also this big kind of severed head, which I kind of, kind of really didn't like at the start, but now I kind of love it. That was like a full expressive kind of work. But um, I'm rambling a bit. Um, only because I'm no, not. excited. Oh, am I? Okay, that's good. That's good. <laughs> but why is this? Why is this show? Why would we think it's different to what we normally see in them? But the way the way it's immersive, the way it's kind of. I'll I'll send you some photos it? later. But it's um, it's it's sparse. So it's over a big space, and each work has lots of breathing room. And oh, my wow. yeah, and my um my thing is generally to crowd like so right 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 so that kind of makes me anxious just as a person but it doesn't make it bad i didn't i didn't have a feeling that i wanted to put more in there it was just like oh this is different for me like okay i can let's just roll with it and let the intensity of the work you know radiate around the room actually you're, you're 
your shows in Australia at Sullivan and Strumpf, they were both in, in the lockdown too. So I guess, I guess your collectors have been digitally kind of accessing Supportive. your work at yeah. times, as well as maybe having to visit <coughs> galleries when it's just them in the room or something. Like there, there's definitely been this evolution. It was, was that something that was a challenge or was that exciting? It was exciting. Like, I think, you know, I don't think people necessarily always have to, if you can't encounter the work in the flesh, you know, the photo is what you have to encounter and that's fine for me. But I think my work photographs well because there's lots of contrast in there. You know, like they're not kind of subtle grey things with subtle tonal undulations where if you photograph them, you know, you can't see and engage with all that. You know, they're like big expressions, big drips, lots of contrast, lots of shine. And, you know, when I'm when they photographed, I make sure that, um, you know, it picks up all the gold. So... I think my work, despite being really sculptural and, you know, hand moulded or whatever, is actually very screen friendly. Uh, So I think that's been really helpful for me because that's just my vernacular. I do also think... Mm. I do also think when they arrive, like say you buy something off a video or, or an image and then the sculpture arrives at your house, you're going to be rewarded anyway because that kind of work, like even your paintings, they look so fluid and so textured and so the colours are so bold that it's probably even better. Yeah, there's like, like little you know I mean? stenciling like, elements and everything totally. you don't pick up. And the detail, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think, you know, like this whole development of like you you didn't have to go to your opening. You didn't even have to go to your install. And even though, of course, artists want to control like the the way the work has been installed, I do think it could be a way of evolving the art world because I, I think so much pressure is put on artists um, during that week that's actually quite traumatic. It's almost like PTSD can happen. You know, it's like it's like the expectation of an artist who has to go from being quite a private individual where they're on their own a lot to suddenly have to perform for collectors. I mean, what, what's that like for you? Because, I mean, you've even got, like, celebrity collectors like Troy Sivan, the pop star who I love, <laughs> um, from Australia. But, like, is, is that a funny thing? Is it is it challenging? Or do you enjoy meeting your collectors and getting to know them? Well, I... I- I just see it as kind of part of the job, but like it, it's it's fine. Like you know, I I like it. Like I think there's lots of you know, especially with like young people, and I often like engage with lots of young people just because it keeps like knowing what the current zeitgeist is. is I think is so important as an artist. I think just from my observations, I think lots of artists kind of dissipate because they aren't able to like just think in a current way. It's not even about what they make sometimes. And, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, trendy anti-capitalist sentiment um, that's just generally around, you know, the art world. But artists need to make a living. And at the end of the day, like, a collector is someone who loves art and is supporting artists to keep making work. And that's essentially how I always look at those things. But what I always find really interesting is the questions um, that I get when people encounter my work and the one that comes up the most is how long did this take to make and oh really and i think it's because two things it either looks like it was made in two minutes <laughs> but then they question that and think maybe it was made on a lot i think people have a lot of difficulty um putting a timestamp on the process and mm. they actually take ages to make um even though they look like they've been exhaled, you know, from some creature, um, they, they're like, start to finish, minimum a month. Yeah. Wow. 
And I guess you have that knowledge of ceramics, don't you? Because people know they have to be fired, or yeah. they might know. Yeah. Or, or Everyone sort of has an awareness. So maybe it looks very process. immediate, yeah. but it, it could be longer. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just putting it out there. I would love to see a two-person show with you and Joyce Pensato. Do you know oh, her work? Yeah. There's sort of these energies. like I can see like Lisa Simpson, the way that she does these Lisa Simpson kind of the same energy. They're, they're very kind of action and, and they have this uh, jagged, rough edge and they're not, they're confronting. To see your work with her work, I think would be really an incredible show. So just sticking it out there into the ether and see yeah. what happens, see what manifests. And jo- Joyce passed away a few years ago. We did her final interview um, in her hospice bed and she was a really good friend of ours. I actually just put one of her works, a Batman, a Margate Batman, it's the last print she made, um, in my bedroom last night and it's the best thing I've ever done. I'm waking up to a Joyce Pensato. But if you don't know her, you would love her. And also, I think Catherine Bernhardt's now such a big fan of yours. She was almost like the next generation after Joyce. She's younger and um, still alive, obviously, and doing loads of great stuff in St. Louis. But it's interesting. There's lots of... I I can see lots of parallels for loads of different artists. Yeah, very cool. Very good. Um, wicked. Well, we ask every guest two questions. Um, the first is, if you could do an art heist and take home any artwork, either from a museum or, or somewhere, I don't know, a friend of yours house, anything, uh, is, if there's something you really love as an artwork, um, we would help you. We can bring cranes and trucks and anything. <laughs> um, you know, I, I may need. just figuratively speaking, if I, I'm a really good sleeper, but if I could lose sleep, I would have lost sleep over this question. Um, it's just, it's like... <laughs> Like, mainly because all the works that I would love to live with are, like, vernacular religious sculpture from, like, East and Southeast Asia. Like, my abs... But, you know, I can't just take those. Um, And I don't even want to... It's also... I also feel, like, quite subversive even talking about stealing one of them. Um, But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all hypothetical. Well, it's... Let's just say the world was... We were all on an even playing field and I could just take something and there'd be no historical or cultural ramifications. Repercussions. But what I would absolutely love would be a Gandharan Buddha. Um, So they're Buddhas that originated in northwest Pakistan and um, 330 BC, I think, around that region. And these kind of emerged at a time where, you know, they had class, they were made in that region, but they started to emerge with classical influences because Alexander the Great kind of came through that region at the time. So these um, Buddhas are actually these kind of buff, like dudes with top knots and beards and this kind of languid drapery around them. And they're just carved so beautifully in stone. Um, You can actually find them in most museums around the world. I'm not sure how they came into those collections. There's a lot of like uh, discourse around that at the moment and discussions around those things. Uh, But I would like, Absolutely love if I could. This ever is what you based your. This is what you based your image on. <laughs> yeah, something. Well, oh god, it's so hard. I think I've always hated when artists make heaps of self portraits, and then I like look at my work and I just think, oh, what am I doing? No, don't think that is <laughs> fucking brilliant. I love it. We love your work, and also, I hopefully there won't be any ghosts or um, spirits or deities coming for you when you do that. When you do that art, hope. oh, I hope <laughs> they'll, come, they'll come for us. We'll take responsibility. So, what yeah. is your favourite colour, Ramesh? Oh God, um, it's you know what? I'm going to own it. It's pink. I have just loved pink my whole life. It's in it's in my work. It's in my house. It's in my wardrobe. Um, but it's not like a salmon orangey pink it's like a cool electric pink highly saturated um and i just think it is just one of the most 
amazing colours to emerge. Does this feature in your work a lot? I think the, the car painting one, that was kind of like, there was like a pink in that, but that was more vibrant, I guess, to what you're describing. But there's a lot of yellows that appear in your work and orange, but I've yeah. not seen a lot of pink. It just doesn't really exist in glaze form. Um, it's actually incredibly difficult to get that kind of pigment um, in that capacity. And the oranges and like, I, it's no secret, highly saturated palettes are essentially what I love. Like if it wasn't pink, my favorite color would be like a primary yellow. Um, and like, and I also think, you know, like color is something that I think is so um, emotive, you know, I think it really, um, people can relate to it in so many different ways. And I think color is really core to how I communicate as an artist. Amazing. What's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, oh, I have a good response to this. Um, one <laughs> of my teachers at university told me to beware of compliments. You're so brilliant. You're <laughs> <laughs> in the wrong place because we only interview people <laughs> and compliment. Enough. And we're very gushy. Why is that? So you're going to get a lot of what, compliments. What does she say with that? That, that would just hinder your development. Stay away from Russell and Rob. Oh, but, well, it, I think she was kind of uh, referring to the fact that, you know, if you believe all the good stuff, you have to stay critical and grounded. And I think, you know, to be an artist... Like don't, don't, don't read your good reviews. Like, don't read your five-star reviews. Exactly. I, I get it. It's a good advice. Yeah. And then, and then what advice would you give uh, younger artists? I think you were talking about advice earlier on in, in the studio practice and everything. But what would you give to our younger listeners who are artists? Um, oh, my God. I have the most dull piece of advice, which is don't be afraid to talk about money. Oh, Why? Well, how are you meant to eat? Like, I think there's this kind of mysticism, you know, that artists as, you know, free thinkers and moving through the world, um, like there's a culture, I think, endemically in the arts where especially younger artists don't get paid for lots of things. And building a financial infrastructure around your work, I think, is the way you can actually keep making artwork, you know, unless you've been born into some kind of context where you're able to do that and have that support. Like, you know, I'm like... I didn't have that. So, you know, I actually have to think um, if I want to actually make art forever, I actually need to think of a little bit about it like a business too. Mm. Yeah, totally. That. I also think there needs to be more support for artists to um, get help with grants because a lot of artists I know, I mean, even myself, like if you've suffered with dyslexia when you're a kid or whatever, or or even just learning English or like I, I struggled with English as a kid, but like I sometimes find filling out forms incredibly anxiety inducing. And I've noticed it a lot with um, some of the artists that I work with as well. And it suddenly struck me like, why, are there, why is there not more help for actually filling out the forms or, or even ways to like make it less hard to apply? for a, a, a fellowship or, or something because yeah. I saw that you got a mid-career Australian artist grant the Sydney Maya Creative Fellowship and also the idea so, so that one in particular like mid-career the idea that it's not just about the youngest artist that actually you might help someone halfway through or even when they're older or, or any stage of their career we need to really reevaluate all that I think yeah I think there's a real um, shift away from age being a factor and yeah. thinking more about career stage and I think that's a good thing yeah, definitely. Um, do you collect other artists? Because I heard that you lived with a few yeah. artworks. Is that something you enjoy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I actually like my environment to be quite 
sparse and curated, but I do have lots of objects that I really love. And I think just being an artist and making things, um, I, like stuff brings me a lot of joy, but I like the stuff to have room. And I think the stuff I have in my house, the stuff that I love the most are the things that um, are always different when I look at them. I know that sounds a bit strange, but something where it just feels different or looks different. And I think that kind of level of communication that's hard to describe that artwork can, you know, evoke is what I love so much about it. Amazing. So what's next? What are you working towards now? So you've got the show, as we talked about, Mud and the Rainbow, that is just about to open at Javeri <coughs> Contemporary in Mumbai. That's spelled J-H-A-V-E-R-I. Please look that up. But what is beyond? Where well, well, um, you know, this art world stuff, everyone's so like, oh, you can't mention this embargo, blah, blah, blah. Um, but stuff I can mention, I think the most exciting thing that I've got is my book coming out. So my 400-page monograph with Thames and Hudson. And Russell actually wrote the foreword. Um, Woo, wicked. Yeah, so we're just on, um, we're nearly about to sign off on it to go to print. And I have so much appreciation for people who work on books and make books now. I had no idea how much work Seriously. is involved. Like, I never want to write a caption or check a caption <laughs> again because there were just so many things where I was the authority on, like, They'd be like, Ramesh, what year was this from? And I'm like, ooh, I don't, you know, 2015? Like, that's fine. So, yeah, I think um, I, it's, 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 I think it's a bit of a love project. I worked really collaboratively with the book designer as well. Um, so goodness. there's, oh, thanks. Yeah, I sent you the draft. Um, so good. So, so good. It's but, so visually arresting. I mean, your work, just to see all of your work like that together, page after page, is so intoxicating it's really a stunning book and the images are beautiful it is funny the way the joy is taken out of making books when you actually have to talk about <laughs> picture research all that stuff all the permissions we had that with our talk art book and we're, we're talking about doing a new talk art book in the future and we're, we're totally changing the way we're doing it because we have to be free like i think as creative people you don't want to get bogged down in like you know, picture research or whatever. It's hilarious. But you know your book. So what about your archive? Because I heard that for the first time you were you were actively kind of creating a really strong archive. Has that been in relation to that book as well? I guess? Well, the Art Gallery of New South Wales is has acquired my archive. So as part of their Amazing. part of the cultural gifts program. So they've basically taken like all my glaze samples, all my notes, all my like weird etching proofs. And um wow. so my collection of just things that inform my artwork and rubber snakes ru really, oh, i put one rubber snake in just symbolic yes. symbolic <laughs> but it's the whole idea of even having an archive like i think i've been practicing since what 2015 like it's a six-year archive and it's just i think the most important thing in there are the drawings and like i actually haven't made them for anyone really and um i think my framework of the archive was the Art Gallery of New South Wales acquired an installation of 77 works um, on this big kind of ramshackle scaffolding structure. And I just thought the archive would be a really good complement to unlock a lot of the mysteries in those works. And it's freeing for you for that work to be looked after outside the studio because that isn't sort of there hanging around and you can act, you've got now digital versions of it. So that must give you space for more stuff. Yeah, clean, cl cleaning the slate or whatever. They 
<laughs> oh, love that. Oh, Ramesh, we love, love you. you Ramesh. You can take that. Oh, I love you. You don't need to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, yeah, it would be great to have you in our next book. I would love that. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, yeah. Well, I look forward to actually getting to meet you one day in real life. Hopefully, in in um, Australia, if we IRL. get IRL. Yes. Um, or if you come here to the UK or wherever we may meet. Yes. Maybe in India. Oh, of course. Or, or, or Sri Lanka, even. Do I have permission? Do I have permission to take a screenshot? Yeah. Oh yeah, big time. Well, for everyone listening, you might see this screenshot on Ramesh's Instagram. But his Instagram <laughs> is what? What is your handle? Oh God! You know, I've had this handle since I was twenty-one, and I've contemplated changing it. Um, my handle's Rams underscore Deep sixty nine. Rams Deep sixty nine. <laughs> I haven't even thought about that. Rams D. You can also <laughs> you can also go to Sullivan Strumpf, um, which is uh, S T R U M P F at the end. Sullivan is how it sounds, but Strumpf, um, which is your gallery in Australia, and then Javeri Contemporary in India. Yeah, I don't know what the handle is, but you can. I think it's Javeri. Is it? Okay, yeah. okay. But we we will we will link, we'll link to. To, to all of them and um, thank you so much this has been such been a wicked brilliant, Ramesh. Um, hour thank and a half you. I've loved every minute thank you and we'll be posting images on our Instagram at TalkArt thanks for listening cheers bye everyone bye, bye. Ramesh bye you've been listening to TalkArt with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. follow us on Instagram at TalkArt where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode with music by Jack Northover subscribe to TalkArt at Apple Podcasts Spotify Acast or wherever it is that you you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.